We're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But before we do, take a look at how chapter 6 ends with a question. Verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And the writer is investigating life under the sun, life in a secular world where God plays no meaningful part. And in such a world, that question is a nagging one, isn't it? If there is no God and therefore no moral absolutes, how can anyone say what's good? How can anyone say this is how you should live, this is moral and that is immoral? But of course, that doesn't stop people trying in a secular world, does it? In fact, you know, our modern Western secular culture is incredibly moralistic and very quick to tell you when what they think you're doing is not good. I mean, even companies have got in on the game. In a recent article in the Times newspaper, which was entitled corporations have become our moral arbiters, where once we look to the church to enrich our souls, we now rely on hypocritical employers. The journalist James Marriott describes how companies have taken on the role of moral instructors. For example, Coca-Cola has declared that it stands with those seeking justice and equality. As if it was a judge of what is morally good, he says, rather than just a seller of fizzy drinks. And through workshops on racism and sexism, they are hoping, he says, to make us better people. But in a world where there is no God and therefore no basis for absolutes, how do you decide which version of good or better you are going to opt for? Coca-Colas or Pol Pots? Because what seems self-evident to Coca-Cola clearly wasn't so self-evident to the Khmer Rouge. At his trial for crimes against humanity, Kiao Samphan, one of Khmer Rouge's top leaders, defended himself saying, As an intellectual, I have never wanted anything other than social justice for my country. Well, sure, but it was a social justice that resulted in the death of one quarter of the population of his country. So whose version of social justice, of what's good, are you to choose? Well, in chapter 7, the preacher says that as you assess its take on good, every worldview faces three tests. How does it deal with death, and especially your death? How does it deal with adversity? And, interestingly, how does it handle romantic relationships? And he wants you to ask, in each of those scenarios, which works better? The idea that there is no God or that there is? First point then, dealing with death. Look at verse 1. 
A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. And in the Bible, your name is your reputation, and having a good reputation is way better than having good looks or a great smell thanks to some perfume or some aftershave. But the preacher is saying, if a good reputation is better than superficial appearance, well, so the day of death is better than the day of birth. But we hear that and think, really? You know, Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And when someone is expecting a baby, their friends throw them a baby shower, don't they? And they buy little pink booties or a nice little blue baby grow. But no one throws a death shower. Martin's going to die. Let's have a party. Now, don't get the preacher wrong. The day of birth is special and it can teach us stuff. And not just that every baby looks like Winston Churchill when it's born. Hold a baby and you can marvel at the mystery of life, of creation. It's that the day of someone's death teaches you more. Because someone's death makes you reflect on a life well lived or a life wasted, on their investment in others, or their lack of it, on what most counts in life. Hold a baby and you will feel the warmth of love, but sit beside a dying man or a dead one and you can't help but reflect on your own life. One day this will be me, one day I too will die, so how should I now live? The American author Robert Jordan, who himself received a terminal diagnosis, wrote, Death comes to us all. We can only choose how to face it when it comes. And yet the person with a secular mindset typically chooses not to do that. They don't like the idea of their own mortality. Talk of death is morbid. Let's not talk about that. But the preacher says, verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now in this photo, the couple beside us are Jeremy and Katie. And they were like parents to me at university. And Jeremy preached at our wedding. And the Bible verse he took was Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But I doubt any of us have heard that text at a funeral. And few of us would say, I so much prefer funerals to weddings. And the person with a secular mindset who thinks that this life is all there is would far rather go to the house of feasting 
than face the reality of death or sit beside a coffin and think seriously about the implications of death, that one day this will be me. So how should I be preparing myself? Instead, we can live in denial. We pretend that we're going to live forever. We don't think about death. But think about it. What good is a worldview that doesn't want to face reality, that shies away from that? The English novelist George Eliot wrote, Worldly faces never look so worldly as at a funeral. One commentator, David Gibson, talks of the TV series Fame. Fame, I'm going to live forever. Except, he says, for version two, they had to use a whole different set of actors because, funnily enough, the originals weren't so young or attractive anymore. They were stiffer and more saggy. They'd aged. It turns out we don't live forever. And yet, for a worldview that prides itself on authenticity, the avoidance of the subject of death is ironic, isn't it? Because the authentic you will one day die. And the preacher is saying, so don't you think it would be best if you took that to heart and became truly authentic? And so, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, he's not going back on his word that you and I should find joy in the small things of life. He's critiquing a superficial, shallow life. The life, the kind of life that tries to drown out the reality of our mortality with entertainment, lining the road to our own funerals with one fun party after another so we don't have to think too much about death. Instead, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Now, your heart is your emotional worshipping centre. It's the centre of your choices. And where you tilt your heart determines what kind of person you are becoming. And he's saying that the house of mourning, taking to heart that you are going to die, is a much better training ground for life, for a life of depth, than a ceaseless round of parties. Because at a party, you are just going to hear verse five, the song of fools. Now at school, I used to play rugby and we had a whole repertoire of songs that you would never sing to your mother. But those songs didn't teach you much worth learning, do they? Or think of the song of people who praise you or agree with you. It's a great song, isn't it? Makes you feel good on the inside. But the preacher says you will learn much, much more through the rebuke of the wise. 
because they'll be telling you one day you are going to stand before God. So don't waste your life. It's time to get this area of your life sorted. So if a secular worldview implicitly leaves people living in denial, we need something better, don't we? A worldview that means that we can face death and yet face it with hope. And Christ gives you that because he too was made subject to death. And of all deaths, his has the most to teach you. Because the cross tells you you are loved, not abandoned. Your life does have a point. You're forgiven. So you have nothing to fear of death or the judgment that lies beyond it. And his resurrection tells you death is not the end, there is a beyond it. As he said to Martha, who is standing beside the graveside of her brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And when you get it, that has the power to give you courage to face your own death ahead of time and take it to heart and then live not a superficial life, but one of increasing depth and joy. Okay, but if death is one test for an under the sun worldview, the difficulties of life that life throws at you is another. Second point, handling adversity. Verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, bad things can happen to good people while good things can happen to bad people. But how are you to handle the fact that life doesn't always give you what you think you deserve or what you want, that it doesn't work out the way you think it should? How are you supposed to handle that? Well, the preacher's saying that a secular worldview doesn't just leave you wanting to escape the reality of your mortality. It also leaves you wanting to escape the reality of your difficulties. And he gives us four examples. Verse seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. You see, when those in authority lack integrity, standing up for what's right can cost you, can't it? So it can be tempting to compromise your own integrity or to cut corners ethically. Because why risk your own position for a battle that you can never win? There's a saying, everyone has their price. But the preacher's saying, yes, but don't be everyone. Have the courage to live a life of virtue. But a secular worldview will struggle to tell you why you should do that. 
because if this life is all there is, this life is the only one you get to win in. So surely the end justifies the means, doesn't it? But the second scenario he gives is the fact that the hard times just seem to drag on and on. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You see, to deal with adversity rightly, the preacher is saying that you need to stay in it for the long haul. You need to be a person of patience and not like the proud who think, this is not going to last, I can handle this. But if this life is all there is, it's hard to be patient, isn't it? Because you need a result soon, time is ticking. So when things aren't improving anytime soon, you can start getting frustrated, frustrated and angry. Scenario number three, verse nine. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So one of the problems of an under the sun worldview is that you can struggle to accept that this life or other people aren't going to give you what you want, what you think you deserve, but you need them to because this life is all there is. So anger and bitterness can get a foothold, but what does anger do? It slowly eats away at you. Okay, but there's a fourth danger when things aren't going the way we want. Nostalgia, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now maybe you think, hey, come on, surely it's religious people who are always wanting a return to the good old days, the golden days, not the secular people. Well, maybe, but if you have an under the sun view of life, no God, nothing beyond death, and life is not giving you what you want, one way you might try and deal with that is by taking an emotional trip back in time to when you did have that job or that income or that relationship and you feel robbed of what was. Okay, but what is that? In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said that, if you're honest, you know that if you could go back in time or if things could be how they used to be, things would never be as good as you're imagining them to be. And that's because, he says, it's not the past that you're after, but the future, not for a world that's gone, but for one that is not yet come. The things you are longing for, he said, are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, you're not really after how things were, but how they should be. You're after a perfect world, for a world made right. 
You are longing for eternity. But an under the sun worldview can never give you that. It can never answer the longings of your heart. But Christ can. In Revelation, John heard a voice coming from the throne of God saying of the future, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But in verses 16 and 17, the preacher says that rather than trust God like that, rather than trust that God will make all things right, people typically handle adversity and the fact that bad things can happen to good people in one of two ways. Firstly, verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? It's the approach of the religious moralist. Hey, bad things are happening to me or to this other person. So maybe I or the other person that they're happening to haven't been good enough. I need to become more moral. I need to become more righteous. I need to try harder to make sure that God blesses me. I need to buy God off. That's the first option. But there's a second one, verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Because you could see bad things happening to good people, maybe even to yourself, and think, well, what's the point of being good and moral? It clearly doesn't insulate you from trouble, and it quite possibly spoils the fun along the way. And the preacher is saying, avoid both of those errors. They are bad ways of handling the adversities of life. Because if you take the path of the religious moralist and think that God owes you, you are only kidding yourself. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But the path of not caring is also no good. Because he says it just brings death, like emotional pain, into your life ahead of time. Instead, he says, there's a third way. Verse 18. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. But hey, you need a way of fearing God that doesn't end in the moralism of thinking that you've got to prove yourself to God and prove yourself better than others, don't you? And it's only the gospel that can give you that. Because when you see Jesus, the only truly righteous man who was good and never sinned, when you see him having to die for your sins to save you, that deeply humbles you. And you begin to realise that you have no claim on God other than him. But when you see him dying and rising for you, you also know that you are loved and accepted because of him. And that leaves you wanting to obey him 
not from the duty of the moralist, but from delight. That's why the preacher says in verse 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Because you'll know that in adversity, even in adversity, God is working all things for your good. That as Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That not even adversity can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, but if Christianity gives you a much better way of facing death and adversity than a secular worldview, a secular take on life also falls short in a third area, romantic relationships. Third point, navigating relationships. Go back to verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, there are some names that you hear and you just have an immediate reaction to them, don't you? Whether that's good or bad, like Donald Trump or Margaret Thatcher or Nelson Mandela. Because what you're remembering is their character. And the preacher is saying, while an ointment, a perfume, an aftershave can fill a room with its smell, so can a person's character. And someone can be externally beautiful or handsome, but inner character trumps external appearance or smell every time. I mean, think about it. The size of a guy's biceps or a woman's figure says absolutely nothing or at least very little about whether they will love and cherish their husband or their wife, do they? Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. In other words, there is a type of woman that you could encounter who may very well be beautiful and her hands may be soft and they may do all the things you want them to do, but the preacher says she is like a hunter and you are trapped. Now remember, the preacher is probably principally writing to young men. If he were principally writing to young women, he'd certainly have something to say about the kind of guy who is also like a hunter. I mean, when I talk to my girls about relationships, we tend not to talk much about women. We talk about the kind of qualities they are looking for in a man. The preacher's point is, man or woman, if you look mainly at the outward stuff, you will probably live to regret it. But that's a problem for our secular culture, isn't it? Because it is highly image conscious and life is viewed through an Instagram filter and it has no way of judging what good character looks like. Verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, 
but a woman among all these I have not found. And the preacher's not being sexist. He's not saying men are so much more upright than women. It's that among 2,000 people, men and women, he found just one upright one. Okay, but there's something else as well. Because the preacher is either Solomon or he's deliberately putting himself into Solomon's shoes. And Solomon literally had hundreds of women at his sexual disposal. They were the cause of his downfall. But think about it, given his selection criteria and how low down the list inner character would have been, it is hardly surprising that he didn't find an upright woman among them. Why? Because he had spent his life looking for the wrong kind of woman. But follow a secular, under-the-sun approach to life, and you are going to be too swayed by the externals. And you're going to want to find your pleasure in this life, all of your pleasure in this life because this life is all there is. And you're going to think external beauty is the way to get it. So you won't pay enough attention to inner beauty, which is the real key to relational happiness. You won't pay enough attention to a good name over precious ointment. And the preacher is saying, if you want to rightly handle romantic relationships, you need to be wiser than that. Verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. You see, God is the God who says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God's love for you is not like a beauty pageant where you're chosen or discarded based on your looks. God's love for you is based on Christ. And as Isaiah said, at the cross, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Yet he was marred to make us beautiful, beautiful on the inside. See that, and how you assess others will begin to shift. And married or single, you will be happier and safer as a result because the gospel, because Christ gives you a much better basis for navigating relationships, even romantic ones, than a secular worldview can ever give you.